you want to grab your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 1, or excuse me, Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 4. I told you a couple of years ago, my grandma passed away, and about a year or so before that, she began to forget things, and of course, anytime somebody starts forgetting things, our minds go to worst case scenario, Alzheimer's, and uh, so it was, uh, it was a pretty kind of scary situation, and then you c- combine that with the fact that my grandma was kind of a, your classic warrior. I don't know if you have any grandmas like that, maybe your mom's like that, just kind of classic warrior. If there's anything to worry about, she's worrying about it times 10. And so uh, you kind of comboed those two things together that she was starting to forget things, not, memory, uh, not memories, not people, uh, not uh, n- just little things here and there, but you combine that simple thing with the fact that she was a warrior and it really began to have a pretty tremendous effect on her. And so obviously our family really started praying for her and I started praying for her, which is a weird scenario when you start praying for somebody who has probably prayed for you more than you've prayed for you. And uh, so I know my grandma had prayed for me probably every day of my life and and so, but now I'm praying for her, and it was hard because, you know, we were asking God to do a miracle. It was, it was pretty clear maybe what path we were getting ready to walk down, but we didn't want to walk down that path, and so we were asking God to intervene and take us down a different road, and, and there weren't any kind of immediate results. And that's a hard place to be in. I heard somebody tell me one time that God answers every prayer. Some prayers he answers with a yes, some prayers he answers with a no, and other prayers he answers not yet. The yes and the no, those are easier to deal with, I think. Obviously, yes is very easy to deal with. Who doesn't want God to say yes to them? We never complain about that. But even the no, I think that we understand somewhere when God says no to us, when we're praying for something and he says no, we at least understand that it's within his right as the God of the universe, the God who created us and sustained us, to say no to us sometimes. It's the not yet that can be harder to take. And you're really leaning into something, you really need something, you're wanting something, you're praying for something. And you feel like this is something that God should be able to get behind. And you feel like maybe as best as you can tell, he's not said no to you. It's just not yet. Maybe you have a health situation of your own right now or somebody that you love. Maybe you've been praying for somebody in your family or a friend uh, that they would be, come to a place where they could see Jesus the way that you have seen him, that they could experience his salvation the way you have experienced his salvation and it just doesn't seem to happen for them yet. Maybe you're single and if you got to pick, you wouldn't want to be single anymore. And so you've been waiting on the perfect person. Maybe you're not even waiting on the perfect person. You're just waiting on a person. And, uh, and it just hasn't happened yet. The yes and the no, I think we understand. But it's that not yet that can be a little bit harder to, ta- harder to take. Last week, this week, and next week, we're looking at um, some different parables that Jesus taught about the culture of the kingdom of God. We said last week that if you're in Christ, you've been transferred from the kingdom or the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son, whom He loves. And so if you are in Christ, you live in the kingdom of Christ, and His kingdom has a culture, things that are important, the way it works, there's a culture there. And Jesus used parables to explain that culture. Last week we saw that the, the, kingdom, the culture of the kingdom is a culture of forgiveness, and this week we're going to see that the, kingdom of the, uh, of the, the culture of the kingdom is patience. And not the kind of patience that, you know, you're frustrated with me and I'm frustrated with you, so we'll have patience, or you have patience for your kids or patience with your wife, but the kind of patience that it takes to endure and persevere during a window of not yet. That 
kind of patience is what Jesus is going to talk about today. Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. This is Jesus speaking, verse 26. And he was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and he gets up day by day. And the seed sprouts and grows. How, he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. So Jesus is teaching this large crowds of people, but he's only speaking them to them in parables at this stage in his ministry with these people. Now, a parable is more than just a simple illustration. You know, sometimes I use simple illustrations. I'll tell you some, something dumb that I have done uh, because it's better than saying something that you, dumb that you have done. People tend to take it better when I say something dumb that I've done. And so I'll tell a dumb story about me or something that Annabeth is doing or Jackson or Amanda to illustrate a point, to bring home a point, to make a point a little bit clear. That's an illustration. But a parable, the way Jesus used it, was more than just a simple illustration. Jesus was not just, you know, taking a spiritual point, a spiritual principle, and then telling an earthly story to help us understand that spiritual principle. It's more than that. He's always communicating something deeper than, than what we see on the surface. It's, it's like if I wanted to say something romantic to Amanda, which hopefully I'm doing on a regular basis. Man, I know that you look deeply into the eyes of your wife this morning when she was getting ready and you said something very meaningful to her right before you walked out the door. I'm sure that that happened. That should have happened, I'm sure. Uh, but, uh, it, I, you know, if I wanted to say something romantic to Amanda, I could just um, write those things down and I could say them to her. That would be good, and I'm sure she would really, really appreciate that. But if I wanted to take the romance up to a higher level, I could write her a song. (laughs) I could get away, get a melody in my ears, put it down on paper. I could pull out my guitar, sit down, set her down, look deeply into her eyes, begin to strum and then sing a beautiful love song. Now that would be romantic. But it wouldn't be romantic to Amanda because when I sing, A, I can't write songs, B, I can't play the guitar, C, when I sing, birds literally fall down from the sky. (laughs) That's what happens when I sing. And so it wouldn't be very romantic to Amanda. But the idea is there. You know, you can say something to somebody, but if but if you want to take it to a different level, you can put it in a song. And, and the song communicates what you want it to communicate. But the song itself, the form itself, the medium itself communicates something. And that's what a parable was like for Jesus. It wasn't just that he's simply illustrating a point. He, the parable itself is communicating. And it's always communicating something about Jesus. So verse 26. It says, 
And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and he gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So Jesus is talking about a farmer and the farmer goes out and he throws his seeds down in the ground. He covers them up, he waters them, he gives the seeds everything that they need. But then it says he goes to sleep and then he wakes up. And what that's communicating to us is just time is passing by. He's waking up, he's going to sleep, he's waking up, he's going to sleep. And eventually that seed begins to sprout. It breaks through the ground and then it gets a blade, then it gets a little leaf and then it gets a head and then the head gets a, a bigger until it's time for the harvest and it says that the farmer he really doesn't understand how it happens he just knows that it does now I want you to look at verse 29 when it says but when the crop permits he immediately puts in the sickle that phrase puts in the sickle Jesus is lifting it out of the Old Testament from Joel chapter 3 you know you can't get the New Testament without the Old Testament sometimes we think the New Testament's got Jesus in it so that's the good stuff and the Old Testament is like the stuff before the good stuff but you don't get Jesus without the Old Testament you don't get the New Testament without the Old Testament and so Jesus lifts up this line from Joel chapter 3 and he puts it in the middle of this little parable which would have been obvious to the people who are listening to Jesus because they had a, a lot better familiarity with the Old Testament than we do. Now Joel is this interesting prophetic book. It's pretty short, so if you're looking for some reading material when you get home this afternoon, just look, open up the book of Joel. It's all about the day of the Lord. Now the day of the Lord was this day that the Israelites were looking forward to. It was going to be a day when the fortunes of Israel were restored and the enemies of Israel were judged. The Israelites were the people of God and so they were looking forward to this day as the prophet Joel prophesied about when Israel's fortunes, when their prosperity, when their security was restored, they were lifted up and all of Israel's enemies were judged. And so the people that are listening to Jesus tell this parable, they're carrying that story in their heart at all times because they had enemies. The Roman Empire, in fact, is occupying their land. They're not even really a free people. They look around everywhere and they have enemies. They have this foreign government that has come, taken over the world, but specifically taken over their own country. They have to pay taxes to this foreign government. And so they got this dream in their heart that one day, on the day of the Lord, their fortunes would be restored. They would be lifted back up and their enemies, Rome, would be judged. And it all kind of circled around this Messiah who was going to come. And, and they learned about him through other prophetic books and prophets from the Old Testament. And this Messiah would come and, and he would rally the people. And he would march into Jerusalem. And he would have some kind of confrontation with this enemy, Ro the Roman Empire. And on the day of the Lord, through the Messiah, Rome would leave Israel, hang their heads in shame. Israel would be restored. They would be their own people again. They would get to govern themselves and they would have one of their own as their king, the Messiah. And so all of Jesus' listeners are carrying this story in their hearts everywhere they go. They're looking forward to this jet day and Jesus tells this parable and right in the middle of the parable, he lifts up this line from Joel chapter three about the day of the Lord, about seeds that are thrown down and a harvest that's to come. And one of the things that Jesus is saying about himself in this parable is listen, 
I know that I don't necessarily fit the mold that you have for the Messiah. Here we are in Galilee. Here we are in these different places. I'm doing Messiah-type things and I'm saying Messiah-type things, but it's not exactly what you're expecting. Listen, the farmer throws down his seed and he doesn't know how it gets to harvest. All he knows is that eventually the harvest comes. So Jesus is saying to his listeners in this parable, as there is going to be a harvest, there is going to be a day of the Lord, your fortunes are going to be restored and the enemies of God will be shamed. But it's going to be a mystery how it gets there. It's not going to play out exactly the way that you want. Or our thinking. You know, I think that we have an aversion to mystery. Um, uh, perfect example. Remember back when you were a kid at Christmas. Didn't you always want to know what you were going to get? And when I was a little boy, my sister and I exchanged gifts. She, was, uh, she is a couple of years younger than I am. And so my mom would take us individually to the store. And we would get to pick out a present for the other one. And so when Lindsay and my mom would come home from the, the shopping trip, big secretive shopping trip that somehow I always knew about, I would say to Lindsay, okay, here's the deal. You tell me what you're, you got me. I'll tell you what I got you. And she would always tell me. She would say, this is what we got you. And, uh, and then she would say, okay, what am I going to get? And I would say, I'm not going to tell you and then we do it again the next year same thing I, I could probably call her today and say Lindsay what'd you get me for Christmas I'll tell you if you tell me and she would tell me and then I wouldn't tell her just to be fun she always did it year after year after year because I wanted to know even one year um, after the present somehow miraculously appeared under the tree if we have little ears I won't talk about how they actually get there and uh, so uh, uh, I stayed up late and I snuck in to the room, you know, the room with the tree, with the presents, and there was a big one. I mean, a big one under the tree, and I couldn't resist, and so I opened it, and I found out what I was getting, and then I tried to wrap it again, which if you receive a present from me this Christmas, you're going to see that I don't have wrapping skills. Now, I can't imagine how my parents didn't notice that, you know, a 10-year-old wrapped, rewrapped their present, but they didn't somehow. Now they know, mom and dad, how you doing? Sorry about that. Um, but because um, I wanted to know, and you probably wanted to know. Now today, you probably don't care to know what you're going to get for Christmas. In fact, maybe you're like, I like the mystery when it comes to Christmas. I like not knowing. And I would say it's probably because it's not that important to you what you get. But in the areas of your life where things are really, really important, we don't tolerate mystery there. We don't think that mystery, the unknown, is good in the areas that are really important to us. What's unknown to you right now? What window of not yet are you currently living in? Maybe it's your kid's success, or my kid's going to be successful. Am, am I raising them correctly? Maybe you're getting ready to send one of them off to college. Maybe, you know, they're kind of out there on their own, and they're not, you know, they're in that weird thing where they're still a kid to you, but they're also an adult, and they're paying their own bills, but they really don't have a job, and they're kind of, and it's like, oh, my kid's going to be a success. Or maybe you're on the opposite end of that, and you're getting ready to send your little one to kindergarten. That was Amanda and I last year, and I was so nervous when we sent Jackson to kindergarten, because it's really the first time that you're going to see if you're a good parent or not. You know, you're going to get some immediate feedback. Did I read to him enough? Did I teach him his colors? Does he know how to count to 10? Because I'm going to be judged on all that in just a few minutes when he gets back from his first day of kindergarten. Are my kids going to be successful? Are they going to step into my, you know, shoes? Are they going to fill my athletic shoes? Are they going to live out the dream that I have for them? Are they going to be good people? Are they going to be moral people? Maybe that's an unknown to you right now. 
Maybe your work situation is an unknown. Is there job security there? I've been hearing rumors, downturn here, layoffs here, mergers here, changes coming here. Maybe work is an unknown to you. Maybe your health is an unknown to you. There's some tests coming down the pipe. You don't know what the outcome's going to be. Maybe your marriage is an unknown. When you stood at the altar, you knew it was till death do you part, but now a few years in, 10 years in, 20 years in, well, you're not sure that you guys are going to make it that long. What is unknown to you right now? And I would guess if it's important, the mystery is not something that you like to tolerate. And sometimes it can even feel unknowable, like I'll never know. But in the Bible, there's a difference between the unknown and the unknowable. In the scripture, whenever there is mystery, there is always revelation. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, he's going to use two words that are going to be the key words in the first ten verses of chapter 3. The words mystery and the words word revelation. It says in verse 1, Ephesians chapter 3, it says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now he called himself the prisoner of Christ Jesus because he's actually in prison as he's writing this letter to them. For the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach the, to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration or plan of the mystery for which ages have been hidden in God who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So two key words here, mystery and revelation. And what the Apostle Paul is talking about is he's talking about our salvation. The idea, the mystery was, is how is God going to reconcile the rest of the world to himself? He has his own people. He has Israel. They're the people of God. They're the chosen people, the beloved people. But what is God going to do with the rest of the world? What is God going to do with people like me and people like you? How is he going to bring people like us who are far off from him because of sin and rebellion and wickedness and evil? How is he going to bring us near? And Paul said for ages, it was a mystery. It was unknown. Sure, there would be glimpses here and there of this prophet saying something or there would be an example in the scripture. Oh, it's going to be like this. But it was unknown until Jesus. And in Jesus came the moment of revelation. This is how God is going to bring Gentiles, the rest of the world, to himself through the sacrificial life and death of his son and his resurrection from the dead. See, there was mystery, there was the unknown, 
But then came the moment of revelation. What's unknown to you? It may feel unknowable. There may be days when it feels so dark that all that's left to do is despair. I'll never know. The situation will never be resolved. It feels hopeless. But there will come a moment of revelation. And in your moment of revelation, two things happen. One of two things happen. Either, number one, you get what you're asking for. You get what you need. Something you're leaning into, something you're praying for, and there's a a window of not yet. God didn't say no. He just didn't say yes immediately to you, you, and you had to wait, and then it comes. It's your moment of revelation. Here it comes. Or you have a moment of revelation, and you look back and you see the wisdom of God in not giving you what you want. Years ago, Amanda and I had this career opportunity, and it's one of those doors that opened up, and when it opened up, I mean, you don't even really have to pray about it. It's just so awesome and great and fantastic and just everything you could ever want that you just go, I got to walk through that door. That's a no-brainer to walk through that door, and so a door was opened up to us, and I stood up, and we stood up, and we started walking through it, but it was one of those moments where you got to the door, and it slammed right in your face. It was kind of painful, almost like I got my fingers shut in this metaphorical door, just that dried up on us just at the last minute. Man, I was devastated, totally, totally devastated, but I'm a man, so I did what every good man does, is I acted like there was nothing wrong with me, except for there was totally something wrong with me, and everyone knew it except me, right? Ladies, you know what that's like? When your man says no, I'm fine. Your man says no, I'm fine. But you know he's not fine. In fact, Amanda got it got to a point one time where Amanda said, "You you need to go and talk to somebody. Like you need to go and see a professional." And if you asked her today, she she would say like I was a different person for about six months. It took me six months to kind of regain who I was. Totally, totally devastating. And you know, for a long, long time. You know, I knew why. You know those little lessons that you learn along the way that you can go, oh, that's, you know, I, I can see what God was doing there and it taught me this and it taught me that and it taught me that. But the, the big picture, like the big reason, the big thing that you want to know why God would do something like that, I, I never, uh, you know, I had some guesses, but it just, I didn't know. Maybe it was just life and sometimes life is hard. And last September, we had our first service here. September 11, we're coming up on our first birthday and, you know, we had a great team of 50, 60 people. And, but we had no idea who was going to come. You know, is it going to be 65 of us this week? And uh, remember, you know, we start a little bit late because uh, nobody's here when, when it's time to start. And, and so the people just kind of started streaming in. And I remember during worship, I was kind of back there in the corner there on our very first Sunday. And I thought back to that door that got shut on us. And it was a moment of revelation for me that if I had walked through that door, this door would not have existed. And just saw the wisdom of God in not giving us what we wanted. That's a moment of revelation. Does that mean that every time something bad happens to you that there's a, you know, God's got a bigger plan and it's all going to work out or he's trying to teach you something? No, I mean, sometimes bad things happen because we live in a sick and sin-twisted, broken world. 
mean, the Colorado movie shootings this weekend, that tragedy, man, this just reminds me that we live in a broken, messed up world where awful things happen. Sometimes, when God says no to you and to me, after you have waited in a window of the not yet, there will come a moment of revelation for you. When you see the wisdom of God, and the amazing thing is it's not just you that gets to be blessed by the wisdom of God. Everyone else does during that moment of revelation. Back to Mark chapter 4. So we need patience. Not the kind of patience you have for the person, a person, but the kind of patience that it takes to endure a window of the not yet because there's mystery in the kingdom of God. The farmer doesn't know how his plant shows up. He just knows that eventually it does. Mark chapter 4, verse 30. It says, How shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed which is sown upon the soil. Though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. So Jesus talks about the mustard seed, and the mustard seed is about one of the smallest seeds that you can find. It's not the smallest seed, but in, at least in Israel in the first century, and even in our culture, when you want to describe something really, 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 really small, you can pull out the mustard seed. And so Jesus is saying, you take the mustard seed, for example, the smallest of all the seeds, the proverbial small seed. When it gets onto the soil, you would think, man, what can come out of this tiny, tiny seed? But Jesus says, when it takes root and when it grows up it ends up being the largest of all the crops in fact it's so large that birds can come and rest in its branches meaning sometimes what you're looking at right now doesn't always represent the future you take jesus for example you know the people of Israel that Jesus is talking to, they're, they're looking for a king. They're looking for a Messiah, a king. So if you start with a king and then you work your way backwards, what do you think that path looks like on his way to kingship? Well, if you got a king, you back it up. What kind of family was that king probably born in? That king was probably born in a pretty wealthy, successful, well-connected family. And because he was born in that kind of family, he was given an opportunity of the best education. He moved in the best circles. When it came time for that future king to get an entry-level job, well, because he was so well-connected, which meant he was so well-educated, when he went to go get his entry-level job, it really wasn't that much of an entry-level job. It was a pretty important job. And it was, in fact, a a job, an entry-level position where he could eventually ascend up to the kingship. So if you start with a king that one day we're going to have a Messiah, he's going to be king over all of Israel and then work your way backwards, you're probably thinking something like that. And that's exactly what the Israelites were thinking, the Jewish people as Jesus emerged on the scene. But that's not how Jesus came to be king, is it? In fact, he wasn't born to a wealthy, successful, well-connected family at all. He was born to a simple maiden and a simple carpenter. He was born in a simple town, Bethlehem, not in Jerusalem, not in the the hub of all of Israel, not in one of the the, the most global cities in the world at the time. No, he was born in a little town outside of Jerusalem. 
He was raised in Nazareth, another simple, small town. In fact, Nazareth was so simple and insignificant that when one of Jesus' future followers learned that Jesus was from Nazareth, he said, what? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was in Galilee, which was, a, which, a, which was a region in the north. It was not a region that you would ever move to. It's not a nice region. It's not a successful region. Down south where Jerusalem is, that's where you wanted to be. Amanda and I lived in England for a while in northeast, northeast England in this little uh, community. And we, when we meet people from England, you know, we hear their accents. We go, oh, where were you from? And we lived in England. And they always say, well, where did you live while you were over there? And we tell them where we live. And they always go, oh, I'm sorry. They always have the same reaction because in their culture, that part of England, not a place that you would ever want to live. That was Galilee. That was Nazareth. It was insignificant. Nobody would ever aspire to live there. You definitely wouldn't think a king would come from there. But here comes Jesus saying Messiah type things, doing Messiah type things. And he's saying to his listeners, the people he's teaching, listen, the smallest of the seeds, the most insignificant of the seeds, grow up to be the largest of the plants. So just because I was born in Bethlehem, just because I was raised in Nazareth, just because my mom is a simple maiden and my earthly father was a simple carpenter, just because I've chosen to surround myself not with the best, the brightest, the most elite students, but I've surrounded myself with blue-collar simple people. Don't think just because I've chosen to start my ministry in Galilee and not in Jerusalem, that I won't grow up to be the largest of all the plants. Because sometimes what you're looking at right now doesn't always represent what you get in the future. Remember the story of Joseph from the Old Testament? Joseph was the favored son of his father, Jacob. Jacob showered him with blessings and showered him with gifts that he didn't give to any of his other sons. And so you can imagine how his other sons felt. They were angry and they were hurt. And Joseph, he was one of those kids, one of those people that he liked to rub it in. He was the center of attention and he wanted you to know that he was the center of attention. And so every story ended with Joseph is awesome and you are not awesome. And it drove his brothers insane. In fact, it drove them so insane that they, they took him and they threw him in a pit and they began to have a conversation. What are we going to do with him? Should we just kill him or should we do something else with him? And most of them were like, like we should kill him but some were like no we shouldn't kill him and they look out and they see this slave trader coming and they think that's what we'll do we'll sell him we'll sell him into slavery so that's what they do they sell their brother into slavery you can imagine as Joseph was cuffed roped up chained up in this slave caravan that it felt pretty dark and hopeless he eventually gets down to Egypt where he is a slave of an important person in Egypt and God was with Joseph so everything that Joseph was entrusted with prospered and was good. And so Potiphar, the man of the house who owned Joseph, he noticed that. And he said, well, I'm going to give you some more responsibility. And he kept giving him more and more and more responsibility. And everything that Potiphar gave Joseph prospered and grew and was met with success. And eventually Joseph ended up as the top, the steward, the chief director of Potiphar's house. He didn't have his freedom, but he had some significant responsibility until Potiphar's wife made a move on Joseph. And Joseph, being a righteous man, he resisted and ran away. She was embarrassed, and so she accused him of taking advantage of her. And who are you going to believe? A slave, a male slave, or the woman of the house? So Joseph was thrown into prison. You can imagine in prison, 
not knowing if his future was the rest of my life in prison or maybe death. It felt pretty dark and hopeless. Well, eventually the jailers discovered that God's favor was with Joseph, and so they started giving him responsibility in the prison until he became pretty important in the prison. And there comes this moment where he thinks that somebody's going to remember him when they get out, and he's going to get out, but it turns out they forget him. And I'm sure after he had built his way all the way to the top, and there was this glimmer of hope that he was maybe going to be remembered and be removed from prison, and then he was forgotten, that it felt pretty dark and hopeless. Eventually he does get out of prison, and you maybe heard the story. He ends up as the second most powerful man in Egypt which made him the second most powerful man in all of the world at that time. But none of it would have happened if Joseph had not had the patience to endure on those dark and hopeless days. I want you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Verse 8, it says the end of a matter is better than its beginning. It means how you start is not as important as how you finish. It can seem insignificant at the beginning, but what is it like at its end? Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. I thought that was interesting that they compared patience of spirit and pride. That somehow pride and patience don't go together. That if you're a prideful person, then you're not going to be a patient person. I mean, imagine if Joseph, if he was filled up with pride when he was in prison that first time after being the head of Potiphar's house, he's thrown into prison after being falsely accused. What if Joseph had said to himself, listen, I I did the righteous thing. I did the good thing. I didn't, I didn't, you know, walk through that door that was open to me, that Potiphar's wife opened to me. I, I did the good thing. I did the righteous thing. I followed God. I honored God. And look where it got me. I did it God's way, now I'm going to do it my way. God's way got me in prison, my way, I'm the top of this pyramid, I'm successful now in this prison. You could think that if he was one of the, you know, had a lot of responsibility in the prison, Joseph is a smart, bright guy, he probably could have escaped if he wanted to. What if he had done that? And I'm tired of waiting, I did it God's way, I did it the righteous way, I'm getting out of here, I'm taking it on my own. He never would have ascended up to the second most powerful man in the whole world. If he had been swelled up with his pride and my way is better and my way is best. But he had the patience to endure even when it was dark and hopeless. And it's like if um, you know, you're single and you really want to be married and you've, you've been trying to do it God's way. You've been waiting and you've, you've got high standards. You, you're following Jesus. You want to marry somebody who's following Jesus. And not just giving lip service. You, you want it to be deep in them the way it's deep in you. And so you meet people and they're just not living up to your expectations. And so they got to go. And you know, you, you're just waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. And you're, you're praying and you're waiting and you're praying. And you're starting to feel the press, the pressure. And the unknown is out there for you. It might be tempting to go, listen, I've, I've done it God's way. I waited, and I had high standards. I'm going to do it my way. Because my way is going to get the job done, maybe. I did it God's way. I'm going to do it my 
way. And maybe you end up in a marriage that's even harder than it was waiting being single. Maybe, you know, job stuff at work is you're not climbing the ladder the way that you want to climb the ladder. And, and you've, you've been praying, you've been waiting, and you've been patient with God, but you've got a dream in your heart, you've got a vision in your heart, but it's just not happening as fast as you would like it to happen. So maybe it would be tempting to say, I've done it God's way, now I'm going to do it my way. And I'm going to work the system and I'm going to take advantage of the opportunities that I have. And I'm going to press in. I'm going to essentially do whatever I want because I got a goal. I did it God's way. I tried to wait. I was patient. I did the right thing. Now I'm going to do it my way. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. When we're filled up with pride, we never persevere. We never persevere. I want you to look back at Mark chapter 4 real quick, and this is where we'll finish. It is like the mustard seed which is sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Is there a situation in your world right now where you're holding on to some seeds, but you're looking out at the need, thinking there's no way that this can accomplish this? There's no way that the resources that I have right now, the, this patience, this trust, there's no way that I, it can get me there. There may be some unknown to you. You may be looking out on a barren, barren field. And I think what Jesus would encourage us is to remind us that what you're looking at right now, right now, doesn't necessarily represent the future. You know, God has been so gracious to our church. Um, September 11, we're 10 months old, and we're going to celebrate our birthday like crazy. You've never been to a birthday party like we're going to have here. I'm so excited. I may bring candles, seriously. I may bring candles, one for every single one of you. But, um, and it's crazy to think that, you know, we didn't even exist, really, this time last year. And the God has been so gracious to us. The summer has been the summer, you know, and so people have been in and out. You've been gone, I've been gone, vacation here, visiting here. But there's been a couple Sundays when everybody has kind of come back together. And, and I'm looking forward to the fall. The only problem in the fall when kind of everybody resettles, you know, kind of in late August, got to get back and traveling is done, vacation is done, get back in the routine. I don't know where we're going to put everybody. Which is just God's grace to us. And, um, and it's, been, it's been amazing. And then not only that, but... You know, one of our goals was to be in our neighborhood, wherever our neighborhood was, and this is our neighborhood, and so we wanted people of our neighborhood to know that we were here and be glad that we moved in, and so we've got a great partnership with an elementary school just down the street from here, and, and we're in there, and we're ministering to teachers, and, and uh, we're going to do a big school supply drive uh, coming in August where we just give them everything that they need. You know, here's what do you need? We want to give it to you. And, uh, and so we've been doing that. We're going to do that in the future. We're, we're, we're doing Bayou City Nights, August 12th, 13th, and 14th. It's Vacation Bible School, but not just for our little clan, for, but for our whole neighborhood. We're expecting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids, which means we need hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of adults to minister to those kids, to have conversations with their parents, to just bring the name of Jesus even brighter and more clearly in our neighborhood. We've got a great partnership here in the city with Gracewood. Gracewood is a, a home where moms, single moms who, who need, a little, need a little help to just 
just kind of get back in the, uh, on their feet, get, some, get their head above water where they can go and stay. And we've got people who are going there weekly to mentor these moms. We've got people who are going there weekly to drop off food, babysit kids. We've got men doing construction projects in these homes so they can expand their ministry and their influence. It's been awesome. They're a great uh, ministry in our city and we're honored to partner with them and give them the resources that they need. Globally, we've got amazing partners. We've got As Our Own, which is, which is fighting human trafficking and red light districts in India. We've got His Voice Global, which is uh, feeding people in North Korea. And by God's grace and your generosity, we are able to cut very, very generous checks to them four times a year. By God's grace, he's done all that. Your generosity. We're, we're going to start uh, taking mission trips this year. We're sending a team to East Asia this fall to do uh, English as a second language, to, to just bring the name of Jesus there in a credible way. So excited. We're, we're probably going to send a team to El Salvador with a new partnership that we have with Compassion International where we can go and help break. Uh, for $40 a month, you can break the cycle of poverty for a young child in El Salvador. We're going to have a partnership that we'll do. We'll partner with them and go and visit them. Uh, that's happening this year. We may take a team to India uh, to, to bring justice to people there who are currently suffering and bring the name of Jesus there. Uh, it's going to be an incredible thing. We've got community groups that are adopting missionaries to love and to support as they're headed over to the mission field. Hopefully we'll send out some missionaries. God has been so gracious to us. He's given us influence. He's given us uh, resources. And then people keep showing up here by God's grace. And there are some days though there are some days on a really, really good Sunday that I leave and go, and we feel like a full-grown plant. A year ago, we were just seeds. But man, this, man, this, this is nice. This is good. And sometimes it's tempting. Sometimes, I'm just being honest with you, sometimes it's tempting to go, I think we're done. I mean, we're ministering to our city, we're ministering to the world, we're bringing the name of Jesus, people keep showing up, this is good. But as I was leaning into this this week, God just reminded me that what we're looking at now, even in all of its graciousness, we're still just a tiny, tiny little branch. Just a baby. If we were an infant, we wouldn't even be walking yet. And what we're looking at right now, even in all of its goodness, I think, doesn't hold a candle to what may happen in the future by God's grace. Maybe you have a situation like that right now. Maybe it's not good, though. Maybe it's just fine. It's just fine, and you've grown accustomed to it. It's just fine. And God may be reminding you, no, keep having patience. Keep pressing in. Keep persevering. Keep enduring. It's not full grown yet. Maybe this morning you're looking at a barren field. You threw your seeds down, and it just appears that nothing has happened. Keep being patient. Keep enduring. When there's mystery, there's always revelation. And give it time. Give it time. The culture of the kingdom of God is a culture of patience. 
And those who wait on the Lord will find their strength. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And I just pray that you would make us patient. There's nothing probably more annoying than patience. But help us to wait. God, I pray that we would, we would keep pressing in as a body of believers to what you're doing here, God. And there are so many things that we want you to do and are asking you to do as a body that are still not yet. So help us to be patient. Can you find that thing in your mind right now just in a moment of silence and in prayer? Can you find that window of not yet in your life? What is it that you need, want, or asking God for that he has not said no to, but just a yes has not been delivered fully to you? Can you find your patience? God, breathe that into us. We need your help. We need your help. Put faith and endurance in us today. In Jesus' name.